Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I have absolutely no idea who's behind the glass today. Who are you and what happened to Sandra? We just got used to her. I know. She had to step out, but you're with uh, the great Tim Kennedy. Great Tim Kennedy. Yeah, I right, think so. All right. So, uh... What do you do here at Heritage? I'm a uh, digital production specialist, so I'm a videographer of sorts. So when it comes to documentaries or anything like our social media, I help pitch, produce, and edit and cool. film. Cool. Now, how long have you been at Heritage? I've seen you around forever. We just hadn't had the chance yeah. to meet. Going on about two years this April. Two years. I've been here for 25 years. I, oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> Something like that. You Close to 25. You what do you do for t- fun, Tim? Oh, boy. Uh, do you shoot animals? Uh, no. I you don't? don't? No, no, no. I don't, uh, I don't. Do you shoot guns at least? I do not shoot guns. What do you uh, do for fun? Um, well, I am into CrossFit right now. CrossFit, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, All right. Yeah, it's kind of my uh, That's cool. guilty pleasure of sorts. All right. Very good. Well, it's good to meet you. Glad you're here. And uh, we'll, you know, as we go through this podcast, chime in if you ever want to. Ask a question. I might ask you something. If our guests are just complete flops, we'll just sort of turn them off and you and I will talk. Yeah, that sounds good to me. All right. I guess now would be a good time for us to do our housekeeping. Our email address is thepowerhouratheritage.org. So send us an email. Tell us what you want to hear next week or in the future. And I have something kind of exciting. I got a great email from a listener this week who brought to me this... um, problem they're facing in their community. And we're trying to do a podcast with that person or maybe someone from their community. So we might have a listener-driven podcast. So not only will I respond to you, but heck, maybe you'll end up being a guest. So tell us what you want to hear. Just get get to me. Like I always say, you can just say hello because I need friends because everyone keeps leaving. I'm sure Tim will leave me soon. So anyway, email me at thepowerhouratheritage.org. And Usually, John Popple or whoever is here will tell you where to find us, but I'll do that today, too. You can find us at, you can Google the Heritage Foundation, Heard It Heritage, or, or the Power Hour, and it'll come up there. We're on the Heard It Heritage feed, so on any of your, wherever you get your podcasts, go to Heard It Heritage, or you can put in the search bar, Jack Spencer, the Power Hour, any combination of that, and you'll come up and then subscribe to us, so you don't have to go through that. We'll just show up in your, wherever these things show up, and you'll... Just get to listen to us. So that's that. Now, Tim, if that is, in fact, your real name, I'm not convinced because I just I need to don't really trust you yet. Let me ask you something. Do you like nuclear energy? Yes. Of course you do. You know, I love nuclear energy. Yeah. Maybe that's why we talk about it about every other week here on the Power Hour. That's OK. I like to think and believe that we look at different aspects of the technology. And it's certainly the case that the different folks we talk to bring unique and important perspectives. And I'm pretty confident, despite that comment I made earlier, I was obviously just kidding, but I'm pretty confident that we'll achieve that this week. Let me ask you something else. Do you know who Admiral Rickover was? I do not. Admiral Rickover is who often is referred to as the father of nuclear energy. He was a, an admiral in the Navy. He is the one who Force of personality alone, and also smarts, pushed nuclear energy into the Navy and got the, the very first nuclear submarine built. You know how long it took him? 
You know, you, before you answer that, you know the problem with nuclear energy right now. It takes so long to build, and it be, it's like impossible. Now, they had never built one of these things before, ever, ever, ever before. Guess how long it took Admiral Rickover to build that first nuclear submarine? I'm going to say From ten, scratch? I'm going to say 10 years. Try four years. Bingo. Four years. That's who Admiral Rickover was. Now, I bring him up for a number of reasons, because I always like to, because he's awesome. Although, people who... He had this process where you, before you went into the, the nuclear navy, you had to interview with him where he was not very awesome if you were in that process, alleged, apparently. But anyway, he was awesome. One of the few bureaucrats that I like. He issued a f- famous memo in 1953 where he described the difference between what he referred to as an academic reactor and a practical reactor. Now, I want to use this quote to sort of frame the discussion for us a little bit today. Here's the quote. An academic reactor or reactor plant almost always has the following basic characteristics. It's simple, it's small, it's cheap, it's light. It can be built very quickly. It's flexible in purpose. Very little development is required. It will use mostly off-the-shelf components. The reactor is in the study phase. It's not being built quite yet, not being built now. On the other hand, and I'm continuing the quote, a practical reactor plant can be distinguished by the following characteristics. It's being built now. It's behind schedule. It's requiring an immense amount of development on apparently trivial things. It's very expensive. It takes a long time to build because of the engineering development problems. It's large, it's heavy, and it's complicated, unquote. Now, my question is, have SMRs or small modular reactors, something we've talked about here before in the podcast, have SMRs moved beyond the so-called academic reactor that Rick over described into the practical reactor stage? In fact, I think it's a fair question to ask whether nuclear in general has reverted back to the academic stage. What makes this interesting is that I think that a strong argument could be made that nuclear energy had in fact moved well beyond the academic stage in the late 60s and 70s, but something seems to have happened since then. Or maybe it hasn't. If only we had some experts that could help shed some light on this issue. Guess what, Tim? You found them. We just happen to have two of the very best. Check that. We have the two very best people to talk about all things SMR with us here today on the podcast. First, introducing Matt Meiringer. Matthew not only works for a major power producing company and is trained in nuclear engineering, but he also enjoys curling. Now, I don't want to get sidelined here, but yeah, we are going to talk some curling today. But besides all that, and perhaps most important, Matthew is the president of a really great and important organization called the North American Young Generation in Nuclear. I definitely want to spend some time, um, or I want to hear more about those folks as well and spend some time talking about that organization. Now, not that Matt is not enough, but you know, I like to bring it hard for the Power Hour audience. So I figured today we would double up on guests. So in addition to Matthew, we have Paul Rohde with us, who has deep expertise on the technical side of this issue. Paul has worked on reactor projects and currently works for an SMR manufacturer in developing a reactor for commercial markets. Now, I'm not sure if Paul is much into curling, but he is also a member of North American Young Generation in Nuclear. So Matthew and Paul, welcome to the Power Hour. Now, Matthew. Yeah, th- thanks for having us here. <laughs> yeah, happy to be here. First right. time podcasting. If we flop, feel free to cut off my mic. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you, you already have passed any tests. Simply those words alone, I think that we're on a good track. So now one of the things we do here at the Power Hour, before we get into the issue, not that we haven't spent enough time of me just rambling on without getting into the issues, I like to introduce the audience to the people we're going to be talking to. So I gave a little hint, Matthew. You're a big curling guy. 
But no, in all seriousness, I'd like to just know sort of what got you both into nuclear and, you know, where are you from? That sort of thing. Let's start with that. Matthew, where are you from? Yeah, so I live just east of Toronto in Canada. It is beautiful just above freezing point outside right now, so it's a beautiful day. And yeah, I got into nuclear just for many reasons. I wanted a job that I was proud of. I wanted one of those few careers that just lasted the entire lifetime where you could retire the company you started with. I wanted to make a difference in the world, so produce electricity that's going to help people out. I wanted to fight climate change. So just all these factors came together, and I was just like, this is so cool. I want to do this. I want to study nuclear engineering and that's what I do. So studied nuclear engineering, and I've been working for just over 12 years at a utility, and I'm currently the president of North American Young Generation of Nuclear, as you mentioned. The way you described nuclear is one of the things that attracted me to, you know, I've also built a career on the policy side in nuclear, and I learned early on, you know, I had the opportunity to work, um, I've mentioned before, for Babcock and Wilcox in the mid-2000s, and I got exposed to the people in that industry. And it's just a remarkable group of people. I mean, I've never met anyone in the nuclear industry who wasn't just awesome. Like, they care about their job, just like you just described. They care about their job. They're in it. There's a, they're mission-oriented, utmost professional, and always nice people. I just have always been extraordinarily impressed, and I've had the opportunity over the years, really, to meet people throughout the nuclear supply chain from, you know, thousands of feet underground at, at, at a mine in Saskatoon to all over the place. So really awesome people. Now, Paul, I didn't forget about you. What's your deal? Where are you from? How did you get into nuclear? Yeah, so I'm from Richmond, Virginia. I grew up a son of a nuclear engineer, and so that kind of destined me for that future. Uh, I grew up going uh, camping at nuclear power plants, fishing by them, and things like that. What's your favorite uh, nuclear on, power plant to fish by? Uh, North Anna Nuclear Power Station. You know who in, lives uh, on uh, Lake you know who Anna, lives, Virginia? You know who lives on Lake Anna and has two thumbs? Oh, yeah? This guy right here. Well, you know, that whole lake was built just for the nuclear power plant. I do, indeed. I live on the warm side, and so um, I get to fish year-round, and I absolutely love it there. So, you know, if you ever find yourself around Lake Anna and you want to go fishing, hit me up. We'll go uh, catch a few stripers and bass and whatever you be like catching. Well, definitely, you know. And <laughs> so after that, I got into a few STEM programs in high school. Uh, one called First Robotics uh, that had a big robot competition that I was active with my father in uh, that pushed me more into engineering in college, where I did a lot of internships with the local utility and nuclear power. When I graduated, I went to grad school in nuclear engineering. And once I finished that, I uh, wanted to be kind of the front of the line. I liked the ability to go home and turn the lights on. And I noticed that you know to meet a lot of times the energy crisis that we have upcoming and some of the other global demands you know, I want to be proud of what I do. And so I spent the last decade or so helping uh, a new nuclear reactor get online in America down in um, just south of Augusta, Georgia. And then I just recently, about six months ago, joined an SMR team to help start more reactors. So you're out there getting it done, not just talking about it, but building reactors. Exactly. Awesome, awesome, awesome. We need more folks like you. Now, before we get into SMRs, which we're going to, I want to learn more about North American Young Generation in Nuclear. I want the audience to know more about them. So, Matthew, I guess we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about the organization, what people need to know about it, why you have dedicated time to it to become even the, the president. So, sort of just, you know, we don't need to spend a lot of time. Just want to learn about it. Yeah. So, I'll give the elevator pitch. It was established 25 years ago, so we're celebrating 25 years of success. 
We are a nonprofit organization, purely volunteer-led. So even as the president, I get a big old fat paycheck of zero. So nice. you get people that really love to do that, that want to you know give back and have meaning towards that. We have 150 different chapters across North America, universities, colleges, national labs, utilities, all these different branches spread out all across the continent. We focus on professional development, so getting members to see how the fuel's made, what nuclear waste looks like, site tours, how to be a better speaker, how to be a better leader, all these key attributes that as a young professional, your company may not be able to give you. Or it may just be really hard as an individual to say, oh, I want to see this national lab or I want to see this reactor. It helps as a collective to do that. We also have regional conferences. We have continental conferences. We work with Toastmasters. All these things to just empower and make us better young professionals. In terms of public information, we work with the government. So we go to Hill Days. We talk to these politicians why it's important, what we care about. We have children's books. We go to schools talking about energy, talking about what we do from a young perspective. We also have networking, so trying to break down those barriers, get people out at sporting games together just to get to know their colleagues in other sectors, other departments, other divisions. And we also do some community work as well, so Habitat Build Days, fundraisers. So just a really broad organization, all just focused around young professionals and nuclear breaking down the barriers, and yeah, just becoming better professionals ourselves. Now, Paul, why did you get involved? And before you answer that, let me ask a broader question. Do you refer to it by saying all the words, or do you pronounce the acronym, or do you say the acronym? What's the Whenever you guys are just sitting around kind of talking, you know, talking shop, how do you refer to each other? I say N-A-Y-G-N. When The Walking Dead was going around and you had Negan, um, <laughs> my friends like to make that poster of the bat with the barbed wire and put that on my cubicle. And so then it was Negan. Um, I like, you don't have to say anymore. We're going to go with Negan for, from now on, at least for the duration of this podcast, because it sounds both. <laughs> never mind how it sounds. I just like the way it sounds. And so, Paul, how did you get involved in this uh, Negan organization? Yeah, so I'm more involved at a local like chapter level at my particular nuclear power plant or uh, utility office. And so I wanted to be more involved with leadership, and I noticed that NYGN or Negan was a great test bed to try out being a leader of kind of mm-hmm. a smaller organization before trying to be a leader of a bigger organization. It also let me have a lot of great opportunities, like speaking at universities and fun podcasts, of course. And then <laughs> and even well dumb as, ones uh, like this. Yeah. Um, And then I also got to do fun things like we do a lot of public information and outreach, community service. And one of the things I'm most proud of is being able to run, I think we're on our about eighth year of an annual golf tournament where we've run tons of money for different charities, as well as creating a networking event that plant employees could team up with leadership at that plant and have a fun day of golf. Now, how does, uh, what are the criteria? Like, how does someone become involved? with North American Young Generation in Nuclear, or Negan. Yeah, so you go on our website, naygn.org slash register, then you start to get our nice bi-weekly emails, you get opportunities to join webinars, to get involved. So yeah, there's no membership fees, it's absolutely no restrictions to join, there's no age limit to join. I always get that, it's like, I feel young at heart, it's like, you are more than welcome to join us. (laughs) 
And yeah, at the local chapter level, again, we have on our website a list of existing chapters, the map. So they run their own local events. So if you want to get involved there, go on our website. It lists all those chapter leads. So yeah, there's many just different ways. We have 18 committees. We have 11 board of directors, 150 chapters. So lots of different ways to get involved. Awesome. Well, I certainly would encourage anyone who cares about nuclear energy, who wants to build their networks to get involved with North American Young Generation in nuclear. And I've known about you forever, and it's a great organization. And certainly that's one way for folks to get involved, to build your networks, to become a leader in the in the industry. So awesome all the way around. Now, I mentioned this um, Rick Over quote earlier. I'm going to come back to that. But what I'd like us to do first is sort of lay the foundation for SMRs, like what we need to know about it, like where are they technologically, that sort of thing. And so if that's cool with you guys, we'll sort of get into that. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is where does small modular reactor technology stand? We see it in the news a lot. We hear about you know, different programs and different things, but no one has really built them successfully commercially yet. And so sort of where does it stand? So maybe I'll take the first crack, go kind of broader, and then Paul, you can jump in here as well. So First off, what is a small modular reactor? I want to tackle this because people seem to think it's this brand new mythical creature that's never been done before. All it is is a smaller version of what we already have. We already have them in submarines. We already had them in aircraft carriers. Our industry, though, started to get bigger and bigger. They said the bigger reactor designs in terms of efficiency, in terms of power efficiency, that's where they started to go bigger and bigger. And it got to a point, I think, where they got too big, where it's, some of the reactor designs were bigger than entire countries or provinces or states. So then they started to scale them back. So a small modular reactor, by definition, is up to 300 megawatts electric. That's enough for about 300,000 uh, homes. And it goes all the way down to the micromodular reactor level, which is very community-specific or industry-specific designs. So it started out to put that into, uh, and I'll interrupt every once in a while. So bear with me if if there's something I think that to put that into context, the biggest reactors are 1500, right? But more, more often in that uh, new modern reactors in that sort of 11, 1200 sweet spot. Would that be accurate to give us some context? So so rule of thumb is about a thousand megawatts electric, 1 million homes. That's kind of the sweet spot where it's not gigantic but it's still considered a bigger reactor yeah all right sorry to interrupt go ahead yeah so then that's where kind of our industry was we started to have all these designs come forward so it started with i think over 150 different designs 21 of them are now kind of in the leading phase where if you look at the oecd small modular reactor dashboard they say their readiness and their different concepts and again some of them are using light water reactors some are using molten salt some are gas cooled some are fast spectrum some are micro so you have all these different designs out there Four are under construction. Two different designs are actually operational in China and Russia. A variety of them are seeking licensing. Some are licensed. So I'll turn it over to Paul for that more specifics. But again, just it's what we already have. There's a variety of different designs. Some are more advanced using new technologies. Some are using the traditional water-cooled. And yeah, some are actually operational in Russia and China. So turn it over to Paul. You mentioned this um, 
light water type. It, we, we should mention that that's the underlying technology of all of America's currently operating reactors, although we had built two high-temperature gas-cooled ra- reactors commercially in the past. But right now, the 93 are light water, and that's what one of the types of the SMRs are. But there are other types as well. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yes. Paul, so, so, what say you? Yeah, so uh, Matt pretty much hit on what I was going to talk about, but to kind of put things more in perspective, so the micro-reactors is kind of a subset of SMRs. Those are going to be your kind of 50 megawatt electric, uh, so about one twentieth of a big scale nuclear power plant. And those are going to be ones that you might see on a truck bed for military applications, for medical isotope production, or for like Alaskan drilling or mining operations, something that you just need a lot of power. It's very hard to get the power to those locations. And so you might see that. Then you have, and those are being developed because they're a lot smaller There's a lot more regulation hurdles they have to go through in terms of licensing and because it hasn't really been done on a big scale. But when you're working with the military, that makes it a little bit easier because it is government. And then you have your, you know, what we talked about, the light water reactors. There's a few designs. Um, I know that there are sites in Canada and the U.S., where they've started getting early site permits, which means they're allowed to start moving dirt around. They've done soil samplings. They've said that this site can support an SMR or a nuclear reactor on it. And so they've started to make significant moves as well as started the engineering behind it. In terms of that, you'll have engineering of standardized plants. So basically the vendor will start making a standard plant version of their SMR. And a lot of those are coming out within the next year to three years. And then once that's completed, they'll come out with a more site-specific that'll build off that standardized plant. And that will start rolling out actually concurrently. And so they're hoping to start rolling those out within the next five to six years at some locations. And then you have your advanced reactor SMRs, like we mentioned they're about pretty much tied, a lot of them. There's a few that are having some struggles because it is a new fuel type. A lot of the regulations not necessarily passed to make sure that those can be built. And so there's some struggle with that, but they're inherently more safe. They're called more Gen 4 reactors. The SMRs, the light waters are more Gen 3.5. So it's basically saying that, you know, the Gen 3.5, they took past nuclear reactors that are currently operating and they said everything needs to be passive. We don't need to to worry about if we lost offsite power, like something that happened at a Fukushima type plant. If you lose offsite power for an extended period of time, the plant should be able to shut down safely. So that's something that all SMRs are going to have to protect the health and safety of the public. Shut down, these, just real quick, yeah. shut down safely on its own without human intervention. That is, is correct. What, so they'll and be. That's a, yeah, instead of offsite power, there'll be batteries right. to create plant manipulations to make sure the plant can shut itself down safely without human interaction. Which is an, an important element because even though our reactors that we have today are extraordinarily safe, the safest energy that you can produce, the incidents that we have had have been because of these passive safety things. They required in, human interaction. And there were, you know, in Three Mile Island, there was a misreading of, of some gauges. So this is, even though we're really safe, these passive safety characteristics take it up and, you know, even to be more safe. Fair? Exactly. And yeah. then you have the Gen 4 that not only has passive safety features, but has the fuel that's inherently not able to melt down in a lot of cases. And so there is no big safety risk for a meltdown. 
And so it changes kind of the environment of how you can license and produce SMRs and what's you know needed to be tested in a very stringent manner for safety-related aspects. Now, there were a couple of terms that you used, Paul, and I'd like that you used um, early site permit and design certification. Those were both, I hate to call it anything regulatory, but let's call them regulatory innovations for lack of a better phrase, in the late 90s that were part of what was described as the nuclear renaissance, that were going to lead to a nuclear renaissance in the mid-2000s. And we had lots of early site permits. We had, a, I think, about five or six designs certified. It did not lead to a so-called renaissance. It did lead to a couple of reactors being built, but not a reemergence of nuclear power. My question is, and this, I'm getting ahead of where I thought we were going to go, but, you know, whatever, it's a podcast, we can do that. Why is it different this time? Like, or is it different? Coming back to Rickover's quote, have we moved from academic to practical reactors? Like, where are we in this? And why is this time different? Given that when I look at what's happening, it's a, a running back again, as the kids like to say, of the same paradigm, more or less, of trying to get the industry kickstarted. And I want to remind you guys, I've mentioned it to you before, I'm pro-nuclear. Like, that's why I'm skeptical of some of what's happening now. It's not that I'm skeptical of the technology. I'm skeptical of the policy that is meant to push it forward. So anyway, I'll throw that word salad out there for you guys. So I think the big thing in the past was that most people understood that to build a large-scale power plant, it took about 10 to 15 years. I think it could be done a lot quicker in the past, but because of government regulations and safety standards that vastly increased, the plants had to be built a lot differently than they were in the past to make sure they were robust for the future. And so because of that, it created this big, long, drawn-out process to make sure everything was built correctly as designed. And so they created this new process. As So the, the old plants, the original legacy plants, I'll call them, they were kind of built. Then you would go up to the regulator. You would say, did we build it correctly? And they would say yes or no. And then if they said no, you've already spent all your money. And now you're in a situation where you're trying to figure out, basically, you have a scrap plant or you need to make vast adjustments. They changed the regulation. So if you look at Vogel 3 and 4, Vogel 3 was the new nuclear power plant that came online. That was licensed to a new standard. And so what they did there was they basically said, okay, the regulator can have, we're going to review everything early on, make sure they agree. If they agree, then we start to build. And during the build, the regulator can do inspections. If you meet all your criteria, then you can start up. And so Vogel 3 uh, was very successful in doing that. Vogel 4 will be successful in a few months, starting up potentially even this month. And then you have kind of this new Part 53, they call it, 10 CFR Part 53, that's still a draft phase. So it's still, they're trying to figure out how best to implement it. But it's creating a better licensing standpoint to make sure that advanced reactors don't have to go through the same requirements as light water reactors and that you can use more analytical models to prove different things and use you know, risk assessments to say if something's very low risk or you can prove it's low risk, do you really need to do the same requirements that you did for high risk items? And so the big thing with SMRs is that the idea is instead of a long drought, 15 year process, you know, even using the old style, you could build your plant in five to seven years, have at least one operational. So you can have 300 megawatts electric on the grid, potentially while you're waiting for your next 300 megawatts electric on the grid and maybe another two years or so instead of waiting a full 15 years to get the 1500 megawatts electric Mm -hmm. on the grid. 
And so the big thing with that is that, you know, just making sure that you can do things more effectively. And then, you know, as it's built modularly, you could have the, the power plant go through, you know, the big thing is staying up a supply chain. And so with the supply chain, once that's active and you start making lots of SMRs the same exact way, the original one will take a lot of engineering, a lot of design work. But once you create the process to do it, they're very efficient in pumping out new power plants. But the big thing is just standing them up. So I think where we failed in the past 20 years, 30 years or so, was that we kind of built one, we had multiple different designs, and there wasn't a lot of customers. And so right now, there's a lot of people trying to buy a lot of SMRs. And so the supply chain can be built, and then we can start having these SMRs roll out. Just to give the audience a little bit more context, you mentioned Part 53. You mentioned a couple of different regulatory pathways. So our listeners know the original approach, we'll call it the original approach, was basically two stages. You got a permit to build the reactor, then a permit to operate the reactor. And a lot could go wrong between those two things. As Paul mentioned, there were a number of situations where you built a reactor and you couldn't get the operations permit. And that was for political reasons, any number of reasons. And so they came up with this other single stage, which was a combined operation and, and combined construction operation license that combined those two things to avoid that thing in the past. But that was really large light water reactor driven. Now, and that was part 52. The first one was part 50. That was part 52. Now we're doing part 53, which is a new process that is meant to be geared towards SMRs and new technologies that is more technology neutral. Now, Paul, what you said, was, I, I don't disagree with any of it. Other than you describe Part 53 as something that it would be, I would argue that it's something that we hope it will be and that there have been some questions as drafts have come up that it's not as it's not as newfangled as what some of us would have liked it to be, but it's more same old bureaucratic micromanaging. All right, what do you guys think? Do you have thoughts on that? Do you like how Part 53 is coming along? So, yeah, I mean, it's the government. What can what can you say? It's going to be bureaucratic like that's basically it in nature. But I think it's coming across very well. I think the last couple of years, they created this uh, licensing modernization project that's key to Part 53, uh, where they've gone through and looked at, okay, this is what it would take in old style regulation. How would we do it if we could do it the best way we can? And so they've come up with a few examples. A few companies led that effort, and it's kind of drove to this Part 53 to make it more of an industry-friendly regulation to allow people to actually build these things successfully. Now, some I'll say some of the SMRs that are currently being built, they're building under existing frameworks. So if right. the new framework happens, I think some of the lessons learned in the past was that Part 52 is great for your nth-of-a-type reactor, but maybe your first one you want to build Part 50 to get it done, to get it out of the way. But once you're done with that, everything in the future, part 52 might be better. And so now we're looking at part 53 being a substitute for that. And so if it makes it more economically viable, and now all three of these, of course, they're all designed to protect the health and safety of the public. So each one, you know, once approved, will do that, but with just making sure that we check all the right boxes in the correct manner. Yeah. So in other words, some folks are de are making the determination that it's better to go ahead and build the reactor as quick as you can and then get the operating license. I, I guess that's a reasonable assumption. I guess the politics of nuclear are such that 
at least the political risk of it being shut down is less now than it was, you know, at the height of the anti-nuclear movement in the late exactly. 70s and early 80s when some of these real nightmares occurred. So we talked a little bit about nuclear and, and, and where the technology is. I want to get into some of the benefits of it, it because one of the things that I think makes SMRs attractive right now, just as a policy question, is that there's not niche interest, that there is broad interest in that, this. It's bipartisan. It's, you know, everyone wants to build SMRs right now. And some I would just like to ask you guys, what is attractive about it? What is it about SMRs that is attracting such a broad range of advocates for them? So maybe maybe I'll start here from a Canadian perspective internationally as well. In Canada, we have a lot of remote sites. You have these, you know, far away communities, may not have a ton of people, and they have to a year ahead of time plan out their energy needs for the next year. They have to get it on the ice road or they have to ship it through ice lanes. So they're relying on diesel and they have all these diesel canisters to store all their fuel for the next year. So a small modular reactor really opens up energy security for them. They have this reactor that can be put online. It needs to be refueled maybe every 10 years. They know that their cost of electricity, everything else is planned around that. They they won't have interruptions. They won't have to worry about that. So I'd say it just opens up a lot of communities and other organizations that are looking for dependable, clean energy at a cost-effective rate. So, you know, for example, in the tar sands in Alberta, they're looking at nuclear as well. Rather than using fossil fuels to extract fossil fuels and eating away at their bottom line, they're looking at putting a small modular reactor there. The other benefits of small modular reactors, again, with some of these different designs, is you can use it for hydrogen production. You can use it for district heating. You can use it for desalinization. As Paul mentioned, it's the passively safe features that, again, when I show people that I work in the nuclear industry, the first thing they think about is the first-generation reactors. And what I always tell them is our industry is about 70 years old, so that would be comparing Kitty Hawk, like 1903, to the moon landing, right? Like, that's the time differential we're looking at. So all of these lessons learned all of these design features, all of these safety and technology improvements, we're putting in small modular reactors. We're able to put them in a lot of different communities that, again, like I said, for Saskatchewan in Canada, one Kandu reactor was more than their entire province needs. So no, they weren't looking at nuclear. But now when we can offer them 50, 100, 200, 300 megawatts electric, now they can see uses for it. Countries as well, like Poland, Estonia, all these other nations in Europe that has seen the failure that Germany has shown the world that shutting down nuclear does not mean it's going to be a hundred percent renewable grit. And if you think it's going to be that way, look at California, look at Vermont. There's so many case studies that have shown that if you shut down nuclear, you will not be retrofitting it with hundred percent intermittent renewables. Not if you want a modern industrial society where people prosper, you won't. <laughs> no, on that international side of it, one of the aspects that I think are really exciting, and this isn't like just around the corner, but in the future, is in developing countries. Of the handful of things that I know to be true, one of them is that access to affordable energy is the key to societal prosperity. And I'm not expecting anyone 
I'm not trying to put my views on this on anyone else, but it, it's my view, and I will just want to clarify that that there is this movement to try to put intermittent, non-dispatchable, expensive, to make those renewables be what the developing world should use to move forward is just, I can't believe, is anathema to me. And that nuclear, the small modular reactors, if for no other reason they're worth pursuing because of the vast swaths of people, it will bring prosperity to if we do it right, if the if industry does it right. So... I'm looking very forward to that application, as well as making sure the people of Saskatoon have good, clean energy. No, and that's exactly right. If you're a developing country, you need reliable electricity because you don't have the grid complexities, the system operators we have in the Western world, and you're trying to build a manufacturing base. So if you're telling your citizens to start manufacturing and you start a factory and it shuts down and all your products are garbage... How can you possibly try to get through that development phase? What you need is you need dependable, cheap electricity. And there's only a few options to have that as baseload. It's either coal, it's either hydro, which again, if you have a dam, you have it, or if you don't, you don't, or nuclear. And those are the only three baseload, reliable, cheap choices you have. So again, I would much rather have nuclear which is, again, the lowest form of CO2 emissions and the best for the planet, unlike coal, which releases 85 different toxic elements into the atmosphere, has the tailing pond, 7 million people a year dying from uh, from fossil fuel emissions into the atmosphere. So when we look all this together, yes, <laughs> I want them to go nuclear. All right. I disagree with you on those things. We're friends. You know, we're friends. I would also point out that um, fossil fuels have lifted literally millions and millions and millions of people for hundreds of years out of poverty, and that um, a lot of the numbers that some people put out there, I'm not, I'm not assigning this to you, to you, Matthew. I'm just, you said that, now I got to say this. I got to have my quick word, that they don't account for modern hydrocarbon technology and scrubbers and things like that. And it's often the case that some of those numbers may have some bearing in less developed countries who use old coal plants, but a clean, modern, super or ultra critical coal plant doesn't yeah. have those problems. And, and I, outside, I don't, of, outside of the CO2 thing, which has a whole different discussion. And, not, and I promise I'm not trying to get into a debate. But it, you and said, I, don't, I don't want to vilify. <laughs> and again, it was a necessary transition. It has right. helped us you know, improve the quality of life for vast amounts of people. And again, just as you said, some of the developing countries the way they burn, you know, if you're burning uh, cow dung inside, that's very different than a modern coal station, which has scrubbers, recombiners. So again, I don't mean to point it in the bad yeah. way. I just, I'm a huge fan of nuclear. And especially if we have the choice, if we have the option, I'm much more in favor of that without shading what's been done in the past. Yeah, I, I get it. I'm with you. Now, I'll add kind of maybe a different perspective too, is that, you know, especially in America, we've already had, you know, a lot of plants shut down in small communities, which leaves kind of the distribution of for power there. It leaves turbine building there that you could put a nuclear reactor on an old coal plant or an old natural gas combined cycle plant. Overall, I think we need a diverse energy mix. But if the plants are already shut down and that local community might be suffering, you know, there are a lot of tax benefits given um, in some of the newer past acts 
that get a lot of tax incentives for SMRs to make them a lot more attractive to build on old fossil power plants. And so with that, the other items that I'll add is that, you know, with the way certain politics are moving in the United States, that like the previous governor of Virginia passed a law that said all, you know, energy that their local utility is going to create is going to have to be zero carbon emission or neutral. So no matter where you stand, you still have to follow the law. Um, and so on that is that, you know, people start looking at SMRs as their base load energy that can do that. The other one is national security. And so with nuclear, obviously, you know, it brings back the mindsets of the bomb. But if you as a country have the most amount of nuclear power plants, which the U.S. currently does, you can make nuclear policy for the globe. And so as we start shutting down some of these older plants because they start getting too old, SMRs become an attractive way to keep us still in the front of the line on a national security standpoint as well. I can't believe we're starting to run out of time already. I have literally 25 more things that I want to talk to you guys about. Since it was brought up, I want to talk about the CO2 piece of it for a minute. Putting aside my views on man-made global warming and CO2's contribution and what I think about that. I think we can agree, maybe not, I don't know, that it's a political issue. It has become a political issue. Whether it should be or shouldn't be, it is one. And so much of the talk around about nuclear today is in the context of CO2. My fear is that building any industry around its CO2 benefits will not allow it to be sustainable if one side wins the CO2 argument and not the pro-CO2 reduction side. And so to me, nuclear has so many other benefits. And I'm curious if your thoughts are that the future, not the future, I think the future of the industry is clear. We are going to build lots of nuclear power plants at some point in the future, but in the near midterm sort of time frame, is it totally dependent on carbon policy or is nuclear, is nuclear generally SMR specifically, do you think they, they have a path to success absent that one Policy, I'm going to call it a policy crutch. We can use different words, but that's, only, that's, the, no, that's the words that come to my mind. So maybe I'll go broad and Paul can go specific. I don't think it is reliant on that. I think as we see, you know, even with some of the dams in California, with severe weather, with droughts, they're not having a lot enough electricity. When you see extreme storms take out windmills and solar panels, and when you see world politics, such as with Russia and the dependence on gas, I think nuclear alone is one of the great ones, as Paul mentioned, for energy independence. We have a lot of uranium here. We have it in Canada. We have it in the States. We can be independently producing our own energy that we have that's not dependent on the weather, that's not dependent on other sources, other countries giving it to us. And I just I just see it also that the lifespan of nuclear, again, when these were first built, they were thinking, you know, 40-year lifespan. Now they're 80, maybe 100 years. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing about wind and solar that people don't remember. They have a lifespan of about 20 years. So we're going to see in the next couple of years all these solar panels, all these wind turbines coming down. And the cost to recycle that to dispose of it yes, to build to, new you're going to get swarmed with this that's not been built in all of which nuclear accounts for which yes. you were about to say i'm sorry to interrupt you ah, i still get excited thunder. about that point <laughs> sorry you nuclear said. nuclear is the only energy source that upfront in the cost of electricity right. builds a decommissioning disposal 
everything else is accounted for and paid for up front in the cost of electricity. And when people talk about insurance, I just want to mention this as well. Nuclear is insured. In the States, for example, each nuclear plant has its own insurance. And then if an accident happened, the entire nuclear sector in the States pools together to cover that cost. So again, just from the cost aspect, I think that you know the long lifespan, the dependability, the high capacity factor that it's doing, I think all these factors are really valuable. And that's why we're seeing in Ontario, we're doing $25 billion refurbishment on our existing reactors. We just got approved for 4,800 megawatts of new reactors at Bruce Power. And at Ontario Power Generation, we're going to have the first grid-connected small module reactor online by 2029. So in terms of Ontario and Canada, we're all forward for nuclear. Oh, and by the way, it's CO2-free. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's the bonus. A, that's the bonus. That's the way I like to look at it. Yeah. And, and also the jobs <laughs> as well. I Again, at the nuclear plant where I am at, it's, it's about 3,000 people on site. These are high-paying, dependable jobs, whether you're in the trades, whether you're an engineer. These are unionized jobs. These are jobs for life. We have a great pension, great working conditions. So again, our unions love it as well. And that's part of why our government loves it is dependable, well-paying jobs. I mean, despite the union thing, it's still awesome power. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) And some aren't unionized in the States. Again, I'm just speaking from my perspective. We're just having a fun conversation. That's all. (laughs) How about you on on SMR? Yeah, so so on the... I, I was going to mention the jobs as well. It's, it's something where if you look at the cost of a nuclear power plant, most of it is up front. After that, once it's operational, it's the salaries to employees that's one of the biggest driving costs at the power plant. I think or most stations have about 800 people in the U.S. that work at them. And that's something where, you know, a lot of these are built in communities a little bit outside main cities, you know, because they're nuclear. And it's something where you have a lot of great paying jobs in those communities. So that's one big benefit. The other one is just risk profile, right? So if you say, okay, natural gas is the way to go right now because it's the certain cost it is and because you can acquire it through fracking and whatever means, well, if something happens where it becomes harder to get natural gas or policies change where you can't do certain things, well, then natural gas shoots up. Now we enter a time like the early 2000s where we talk about the nuclear renaissance, well, that was attractive. Everybody wanted the nuclear renaissance because natural gas prices were so high. And then you had no way to get a baseload energy. And so a few things could happen. So nuclear, I think building them now, if you look strictly at the economics of every day today, I think it's going to be a little challenging to to prove you need it just based on economics without accounting for CO2 or if you're fighting the other energy sources in terms of certain benefits they receive, if you assume nuclear doesn't get any of those benefits. But I think if you look at it in a long-term thought process where if you build a plant now, it'll run for 60 to 100 years, what are the benefits in, say, 20 years? I think they far outweigh any other type of energy and last a lot longer. So, yeah. Those are both great perspectives. We're running out of time, guys. So I want to ask real quick, if you could each give us one policy change or one one thing that could be done to help move SMRs forward. And it can't, the caveat being it can't be spend more taxpayer money. Like one thing that's not spending more taxpayer money or mandating that something be done. 
what can be done on SMRs? Maybe I'll go first so Paul has to do a harder one. <laughs> I would say standardization of regulations across the world, like global standard. So again, just we're seeing them built in different countries. Each country has its own regulator, regulations. They have to reinvent the wheel just to go there. So this could really help as well for maritime shipping. So transportation, cargo ships, they're looking at maybe having a maritime regulation that applies to every port that they go to, very similar to having an aircraft carrier that has a nuclear reactor on it. It doesn't have to apply for licensing every port it lands at. It just it's in the ship and it's approved. So that would be my main thing is just standardization, harmonization, everything together, one regulation that applies across all nations. Yeah. All right. Paul, what say you? Yeah, so I would say actually that the environment's set up for success for SMRs, that nothing really needs to be changed that much. Like, obviously, I think the biggest thing is just if you're a member of the public and you support nuclear energy, make that clear to people making decisions and to your, you know, if you're represented by a regulated market. I guess that's one big thing is the regulated versus unregulated markets, how energy is paid for, how it's a competitive market in some regions of our country, in the U.S. versus unregulated in other parts. It's something where they're only going to build probably plants in areas where they can make sure that the ratepayers are helping pay the down payment early so that ratepayers can keep low costs throughout. And so I think the only kind of change I would think would be that maybe opening up for some unregulated markets the same benefits that are in regulated markets as well. Well, there you go. We don't have time for me to spit out my mad, crazy ideas, which are awesome, but I've already said enough. Thank you guys for doing this. Thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out and email us at thepowerhour at heritage.org. I want to hear from you. I will respond, I promise you. Now, before we end, Matthew, Paul, is there anything else you'd like to add? And in doing that, are, are you guys on Twitter or anything like that? Are there places where people can reach out to you or your organization, that sort of thing? Yeah, so for NAYGN, if you're not a member, become a member for free, naygn.org slash register. We're on socials, na underscore ygn. If you have a general question, info at naygn.org. And yeah, I'm uh, Matt with Chips on Twitter or Instagram, everywhere you can find me because uh, I like barbecue ruffles chips. Over to you, Paul. Uh, yeah, so I'm Paul Rohde. You can probably find me on LinkedIn. Is probably the easiest way to find me. But in general, I think the biggest thing I would share is if you're listening to this podcast and you're pro-nuclear energy, just make sure that's known in your community. Make sure when you speak to other people, you explain what nuclear energy is about or do some research if you still have questions because i find that you know most people maybe baby boomers a little bit might be more anti-nuclear due to not really maybe understanding the technology fully and once i kind of sit down with them explain everything they start doing their own research then they come to the conclusion that nuclear power is a great benefit to society and something we really need in our diverse energy mix for the future awesome thank you both Tim, do you have any final words? I feel like it's been a wealth of information. No, more informed. In the in Oppenheimer, as they said, theory will only take you so far. That's what I thought. <laughs> I mean, we didn't get to talk curling or go into the 
I wanted to ask you guys if Rick Overs' quote is still relevant, but we don't get to go there. Well, maybe we'll have you, if you would be willing, I'd love to have you back again. Matthew, Paul, thank you both for being a guest. And most importantly, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you. 